1: And just like that, we're back. It is the Late Kick Extra podcast for the morning of January 14th, the year of our Lord, 2021. Recording a little bit later in the morning than normal, so if you get it in your fee a little bit later than normal, don't blame Jordan blame me. Now, he can't get it to you until like Friday. Well, then we have a separate discussion, but that's never been a problem with producer Jordan. So it's my bad this morning. We had a lot going on. Also, it may sound like the world is ending outside of the recording studio here. And it's not because it actually is, although it's been touch and go in Nashville here lately. I'll grant you that. It's because the fine folks here have decided that now is the perfect time to pressure wash the entire complex. So that's what's going on outside. They're not actually building a bridge over the roof of this place. They're just pressure washing. I don't know what it's going to sound like. Again, producer Jordan can hopefully work his magic there. This is a Q&A format. We do it on Tuesday. We do it on Thursday. It's all college football wall to wall. And it is all driven by you. Now, it's been a weird last three weeks or so. We had a combination of the Christmas vacation. We had New Year's and bowl games. I had COVID. So we really have been kind of off schedule and off kilter. I've still been doing the podcast. But a lot of your questions have slipped through the cracks, which I hate to let happen. So if you haven't already gotten yours answered and it wasn't time sensitive, just go ahead and start filling the inbox again because I'm loading up the queue again. And if I missed it the first time, I'll get to it this time. Joshpate706 at gmail.com. Also on Twitter, at Josh, You can DM me there. I encourage you to follow me there anyway because we have a lot of fun. Speaking of which, I'm about to dive in with uh, the need to address a little something I put on there the other night. So we do Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. And I did a show the other night. It was the first one that we were back in the studio live for here in Nashville. And so I had a lot to say. And I didn't plan on it, but I kind of went down the road of addressing some things that I'm addressing because you bring it up all the time. I read every single one of your emails, I read every single one of your DMs, and so I may not always have time to answer, but I read them. And one of the most common and popular themes that you guys expressed to me this entire college football season is how tired you've grown of some of the voices in this industry, some of the very amplified voices in the business that you don't think have the best interest of the sport itself at the forefront of their motivation. And you don't think they have the betterment of the players at the forefront of their motivation. You really just think they're here to sow discord, chaos, whatever the case may be, whether you're right or wrong. Now, in a lot of those cases, I feel the same way you do. You guys share my sentiment on that. So I went on the show and talked about it the other night. I never mentioned a single name, I never mentioned a single organization. I never mentioned a single topic or issue. I kept it intentionally as generic as possible because here's what I knew would happen. I knew, as is the case in life, a hit dog would bark the loudest. You don't have to bring up people's names. They're going to project the preconceived notions on what you say, and then they're just going to assume and fill in the rest with what they think they heard, even though it's not what you actually said. So sure enough, I put that clip up the other night, and all I said was... If you're tired of negative energy in and around the sport that you really don't think accurately portrays what the sport is, just don't listen to it. Just turn away. Just redirect your attention. I didn't call for anyone to be silenced. I didn't speak out against people who dissent against college football or who hold the powerful to account because I support all that. There are hundreds of excellent regional, local, and national journalists that cover college football that do that effectively every day. I'm all for that. You have to have that. Uh, Some people badly mischaracterized what I said to fit, again, an agenda that they've probably pushed for a long time. And so I said that. Most of you agreed. A lot of people in our industry privately reached out and they agreed. Some of them publicly reached out and agreed. A few didn't. And so a few badly mischaracterized what I said, and then they badly misquoted, in some cases, what I said. And yet I have not had a soul that spoke critically of that comment that I made that properly conveyed my thought process. None of them did. No one accurately conveyed what I said and then disagreed with it. If they did, I'd be fine with it. It's not the first time. It's not the last time. But I do have a problem when I'm misquoted and something I didn't say is taken and then rearranged to fit a personal agenda. And then it's thrown out there by people who were never referenced to begin with. That is kind of aggravating. However, it's been dealt with. I put out another tweet earlier this morning about it and that'll probably be the last time I speak about that. But I do appreciate it, and I just wanted you guys to know that that was largely born out of your feedback. And for the record, those hundreds of people, again, at the The local beat level and the regional level and the national level, I mean, I'm around them every week in a normal year. I talk to these folks constantly. Most of them do a phenomenal job. I mean, they're, in some cases, the very lifeblood of the information flow in this sport. In a lot of cases, actually, not some cases. I mean, you would have no clue what's going on if it weren't for especially the folks on the ground at the local level who I think have the most thankless job. I get to work at the national level, and so I get to talk to a whole lot of people, but also I get to observe the work that a lot of the local folks do. Like, if you're a Brigham Young fan, you probably do not observe a lot of the goings-on on on the Virginia Tech beat. And if you're at Tech, you probably don't know a whole lot about what's going on in and around Florida State football. I do. And I really appreciate what those folks deal with. In some cases, they have a very cooperative and favorable environment for covering their team. In other cases, there's a brick wall where hardly any information is allowed to leak out, and it's very hard for them to do their jobs. I love most of those folks. What I'm talking about are the very, very few who stick out like a sore thumb, who have zero joy in their life. They don't love what they do at all, and therefore they also are kind of vengeful and spiteful for anyone who's allowing themselves to joyfully experience college football, whether it's a player, whether it's a fan base, and they project it. And it sticks out again very, very easily because it's not congruent with what the rest of us are like and what the rest of the folks in the sports media industry are like. You know who these people are. We know who these people are. We also know who those people aren't. I mean, I had someone the other day reach out and say, well, I guess you're saying that no one should ever dissent in college football or criticize anyone in the sport or criticize the sport itself. Um, no because that would be stupid if you thought that. I mean, I look at a guy, just to mention some random names, I look at a guy like Bruce Feldman, who's worked at uh, ESPN, Fox Sports is where he's at right now. I mean, Bruce Feldman, I think probably does about as thorough and good a job at covering the national college football scene as anyone out there. Bruce Feldman's critical many times. Bruce Feldman breaks a lot of stories about bad information many times throughout a given calendar year. I think he does a great job at it. I cannot remember the last time I looked at anything Bruce Feldman put out and said, man, he didn't need to do that, or man, shame on him, or man, I'm questioning his motivation. I don't ever do that. Chris Lowe works at ESPN. Uh, Brandon Marcello, the guys who we have who work here at the national level. Uh, Chris Hummer over here at 24-7 Sports. I don't ever look at those folks and their reporting, whether it's glowing or whether there has to be a lot of bad information put in their stories and say, man, they just hate this sport. I don't ever think that about them because they don't. I, In some cases, I talk to those folks on a daily basis. In other cases, I just read their work and observe their work and have never really talked to them in person. But yet it's very obvious the love for the game and the love for the players is there. It, you don't have to prove it if it's there. If it's authentic, it bleeds through in your work. However, if it's not there, that also bleeds through. And I see it and a lot of you guys see it. And so it's time to call it out. It's the offseason now. It's not detracting or taking away from the game itself. I think it's time to call it out. And it's probably not going to be the last time you hear that sentiment expressed from me. It's certainly not going to be an overwhelming theme of our shows. In fact, I've probably gone too long on it this morning, but I just wanted to put that out there. And I'm sure that this in and of itself will be twisted in a way far beyond what I ever meant it to be. So we'll see. Uh, Case by case basis, I guess. All right, let's dive into a lot of the Q&A this morning because we have got Plenty, plenty, plenty to talk about. So as you know, Steve Sarkeesian has gone on to Texas and he's taken a lot of coaches. So I had Steven, I had Kelly, a number of you asked about how I felt Nick Saban feels about having some of his coaches taken by Steve Sarkeesian to go to Texas. Well, I don't think he's overly joyful about it. I certainly don't think he's turning cartwheels. But I also think Nick Saban obviously understands how this game works. And he's certainly not going to be mad at someone or take it personal or hold it against them if they take a promotion. For example, you look at the offensive line coach, Kyle Flood, who just went out to Texas. Well, he's taking a promotion. He's taking the offensive coordinator spot. Now, Steve Sarkeesian is going to call plays there, so it won't be a traditional offensive coordinator spot. But here's what really matters. What really matters is take a look at what the pay increase is. I mean, if you're getting a two- or three-fold pay increase, man, that's a promotion. You don't turn that down. You can't be turning that down. I'm also looking at Jeff Banks, who is a big-time part of their recruiting machine and special teams as well. And he apparently seems to be headed to Texas. Now, this is as I record this morning. I don't know if it's been made official, but a number of people are reporting that. Let's take a look, and let's see what kind of role Jeff Banks gets. If it's the same role for the same amount of money, okay, then it aggravates you a little bit. But if he's elevated, if he's given more responsibility, if he's given a bigger salary— you can't get mad at that, but I just want to remind you, you know, whether Nick Saban's happy about it or indifferent or mad, just if you're an Alabama fan, or even if you're just an observer who's interested in this, remember, I talked about this on late kick live the other night. It's crazy to think about this. So they won a title this year the well, the 2020 season, obviously uh, the pressure washer has been cranked up outside again. So ignore the noise. And they also won one in 2017. Okay. So like Devonte Smith's freshman year and his senior year, They won a championship. Do you realize out of the entire coaching staff that was on that 2017 Alabama team, none of them were left other than Nick Saban on this year's 2020 version of Alabama? None. I mean, there's always churn everywhere except Clemson, I guess. But that's crazy. And so it just shows you, if you were to watch this casually and you didn't really follow the day-to-day goings-on, then you wouldn't even know that. You would just see the results continue to be the same, and therefore you think, oh, they must be kind of like Clemson. There must be no turnover. No, it's the antithesis of Clemson. They have a ton of turnover, and yet they're getting equal to or better results. So, yes, it's it's nice to have your best coaches stick around, but then again, it's a catch-22 because the more you succeed, the more notoriety they rightfully get. And then the more notoriety they get, the more likely they are to be a candidate for job openings and When you're losing folks off your staff, it probably means you've done something really good. I don't know if you've noticed, but not many people are trying to poach the coaching staffs of places that barely go 500. The reason they're having to hire new coaches is because they just fired their old ones, not because they lost them to a better situation. So I don't think it's a big deal. Um, I think that they are about to probably bring in a really, really good offensive line coach. Bill O'Brien, I know, has been heavily involved and rumored as the new offensive coordinator there. As of recording, this is not official either. Sometimes Nick Saban doesn't even make an official announcement. It's just kind of, all right, we all assume he's been hired. Uh, has anyone snuck in there and seen if his nameplate is on the desk or on the uh, the door? I mean, we'll I guess we'll see in the spring if they let you have a spring. But I think they'll be fine. Um, you know, I <laughs> I had someone who was asking me on Twitter the other night about what I would think if Nick Saban did indeed hire Bill O'Brien, as it looks like he will for the offensive coordinator position. And he was, he was just asking. He wasn't being critical. I, don't, I didn't take it to be critical, but I took that time to remind him of what I just said about the coaching staff. And also, uh, some people piped in, and they're right. A lot of folks were critical when Steve Sarkeesian got rehired. Sarkeesian, you know, he was there, and Lynn Lane Kiffin gets fired right before the championship game, and that was in 2016. So then Sarkeesian gets elevated to the role of offensive coordinator with one week's lead time for the title game. And they end up getting beat on the last second against Clemson in Tampa, right there standing in front of Hunter Renfro as he caught that pass on the field. So that was a wild scene. But then Sarkeesian goes off to Atlanta and uh, because Atlanta didn't succeed as a team, then I guess some people perceive that Steve Sarkeesian can't be a winner as an individual. And Saban brings him back in two seconds flat. He never even thought twice about it. And there were some people who were critical of that move. You can't find them now. I mean, they're they're hiding under some of the biggest boulders they can find, but they're out there. And so I'm just thinking, knowing a little bit of what I do about how much interest that Alabama offensive coordinator position has gotten and how many candidates there are begging to crawl over broken glass to get that position if Bill O'Brien is the guy Nick Saban settles on, he's the best of the available candidates. It's not like they're cousins. I mean, he's not playing favorites or anything. His only, I mean, his only bias is towards being able to do what's best for his team. So, if Bill O'Brien is that, then. I have every reason to believe he's the best guy for the job. All right, let's hit up Joe's question. He submitted it via Twitter. He said, hey, from the last episode of Late Kick Live, I heard you talk about bowl game compensation as a way to try and save the integrity of bowl season. Do you really think that more money from a bowl game, like maybe $10,000, would be enough to keep a kid who has a good chance of making millions in the NFL to playing a bowl game? I don't see anything about the bowl postseason that benefits players, especially the NFL caliber players. The bowl season is all about schools boosting their futures to me, not players moving forward with their careers. Well, I disagree with the last part because I can give you countless examples of players who have massively improved their futures and their stock, even in the NFL drafting world, by playing in a bowl game. So that is off the table for me. But to the first part of your question, this goes back to an idea I put out there on Late Kick Live the other night, and I thought about the fact that you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube once you've had some folks, uh, notably some of the folks we were talking about previously, who have screamed into any microphone they can that bowl games are meaningless outside of the playoff. Well, players listen to that, kids listen to that. So now you have opt- outs all over the place, and then you have even guys who are playing playing at questionable levels of motivation. so you know to answer your question, Joe. I cannot stop all opt-outs from bowl season. I can't do that. I don't think an expanded playoff would do all that much to help it either for the record. And that's what we were talking about the other night. But what I am trying to offer is an idea for how to maintain the integrity of that bowl season um, and maybe minimize opt-outs and keep the guys who do play at optimum levels of motivation. So here's what I came up with. This would require NCAA approval It would require, obviously, a rearranged revenue package with the bowl game itself. Universities and presidents would have to be on board. So there is a lot of red tape to cut through here. This is an idealistic view of what I'd love to see. I'd love to see the bowls put in a hierarchy, which they already are, the higher the level of the bowl game you go to, the bigger the overall compensation package, the overall revenue pot. And what I'd love to see is I'd love to see a sizable chunk of the revenue, TV money, sponsorship money, etc., that is generated from that bowl game, and I'd love to see it put in a pot. So let's say you know there's a a $175,000 total pot, and I would love to see a compensation package put on the line for the teams that make it. So if Team A and Team B go to, let's say, the Fiesta Bowl. So let's take Oregon and Iowa State from this last year. They're going to the Fiesta Bowl, okay? You go into that Fiesta Bowl knowing ahead of time there is $500,000 on the line here. The winning team is going to get 75% of that $500,000 to divide amongst their roster of the kids who chose to play in the game. Now, if you were injured and you couldn't play, I don't know how you handle that. But By and large, what we're looking for is we're looking to stoke the fires of motivation that may have been already doused because people previously told them the game was meaningless. Well, if there's skin in a game, all of a sudden it means something. And I'm not talking about giving kids a few hundred dollars. I'm talking about giving each one of them several thousand dollars, like real life changing money in exchange for playing in that bowl game. Winning team gets 75%. Losing team gets 25%. So you're going to get some either way. You incentivize winning the game Therefore, you don't have to worry about guys just going there to go through the motions and participate. You win the game, you get a lot more than if you lose the game. It's the way the XFL used to do their salary structure back in the day. Winning teams made a whole lot more than losing teams. And that took care of any kind of questionable competition on the field or motivation levels. Uh, And that's what I'd love to see. Okay, so you get paid after the game, you don't get paid for showing up, you get paid after the game. Does that erode at the integrity of amateurism? Certainly it does. Um, I'm not a believer that that's going to matter much in the future anyway with name, image, and likeness on the table. And I'm a big supporter of that at this point anyway. However, I do think that would go a long way. And I do think, Joe, to your question, no, if I'm standing to be a top five draft pick the ability for me to get $12,500 for playing in a New Year's Six game versus what my signing bonus alone would be in the NFL, maybe I don't want to risk it. But how many top 10 draft picks are there out there? You know, How many top 15 draft picks are there out there? And a lot of those guys are playing in one of the semifinal games to begin with. So I, I don't think I saw a single top 10 or top 15 draft pick that was out there for Oregon or Iowa State that hadn't already opted out. And so I think it would go a long way. And to me, I'm I'm thinking about the guys that are going to play, okay? So the guys that are going to play, how do I make sure that the competition level is at what you get in the regular season or maybe even in some cases it exceeds what you get in the regular season? And it is the age-old solution. You put skin in the game. That's how I'd love to see folks go about it. Because otherwise, you know, there may be some people listening who say, Well, the spirit of competition should be enough. Listen, I don't disagree with you. I'm just trying to be realistic. You cannot have this messaging constantly that tells kids, well, the bowl season's meaningless now. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. Well, eventually they listen and they think it's meaningless too. And so, I can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. I'm not going to try to. I'm going to try and create new solutions for the current situation at hand. And I think that's probably our best shot at this point. All right, let's talk about the word underrated. Jeremy had a big question about underrated teams. I'm going to hit it right after this. So, Jeremy asked, what's the most underrated team you think you see out there going into 2021? Now, granted, we're a long way away from the 2021 season or even the spring season of 2021, but I got a team, certainly, right on the tip of my tongue, and they will be for an extended period of time. Uh, It's Penn State. So, Penn State, I think, could potentially end up being the poster child program for the 2020 throwaway theory. The 2020 throwaway theory, which I've talked a lot about with Tennessee and Penn State, is I am not putting an asterisk next to anyone who won in 2020. However, I am willing to put one next to someone who really disproportionately underachieved. I mean, Penn State went a long time without even winning a game this year, and they closed a little bit better. But it's to the point where it's almost outside of the realm of even the most extreme potential outcomes. And so you know there's just something else afoot. I always love saying a foot, but there's something else afoot there. And it's just 2020 disproportionately impacting teams. One of the popular talking points out there that I did not buy into this year is, well, everyone's had to deal with COVID, but this isn't like rain. Like if you and I play a football game in the rain, we both dealt with the exact same circumstances. Okay, so the outcome is still the outcome. But if we say, well, we both dealt with COVID, well, I mean, broad strokes purposes, yeah, that's true. But like, what if I had half of my coaching staff have relatives and family members that either died or had extended stays in the hospital? And what if 16 of my starters spent at least one week on the shelf due to quarantine, contact tracing, or outright testing positive, whereas you had none of your coaching staff impacted and only four of your players? I mean, does that mean I handled it worse than you? Maybe, but none of that is football related. In other words, that's a one-off generational occurrence where maybe you were more equipped to handle it. Maybe you were m- more well-read and the power, oh man, the pressure washer is getting really close outside now. I bet it's really getting loud. Uh, but be that as it may, look, it- as long as there's not going to be a huge virus outbreak in 2021, and it's not going to be around to the degree it was last year, at least, I don't really apply a lot of what I saw in 2020 and 2021. And if that's the case, then I'm looking at Penn State and I think they're well-equipped to be a contender in the Big Ten. I thought they were going to be last year and they weren't. Now, one thing they did do is they brought in Kirk Soraka, and then they fired him after this year. And I'll tell you what they did. They went and got Mike Yurcich, who had been at Texas, and that staff got fired. And they obviously don't need an offensive coordinator at Texas now. I mean, if just that move clicks, if just that move clicks, I mean, Penn State is instantly a top 15 team. I think I almost ranked them top 15 in our way too early poll for 2021. And so, I mean, listen, we got a long time to hone in on that and, and perfect the finer details. But I think Penn State has a chance to massively up their performance level year over year. And then if they do, then they jump right back into that same discussion that I had them in before with Notre Dame. Uh, Texas A&M kind of on a little bit different level, I think. But all these programs that have really good rosters, they have really good recruiting profiles, uh, they develop really well, they have a very solid foundation, and they're just waiting to hit a home run or a grand slam at quarterback. Uh, Texas A&M fits that. I think Notre Dame fits that. And I certainly think that Penn State fits that. Uh, and I had hoped we may see that this year, although there were no obvious Trevor Lawrence's or Matt, even Matt Jones's or, or Justin Fields on those rosters in particular. But you never know. See, that's what I think the transfer portal is about to do to the sport. I think everyone's going to have hope, more hope than they used to going into the offseason. Think about what the offseason used to be. The offseason used to be not too long ago, All right, we have who we have on our roster. And then, yeah, transfers are possible, but they're very much on the periphery of our off-season plan. Whereas now you got dozens and dozens and dozens of kids. It seems like every week going into the transfer portal, some notable names and you go into every off season, especially if you're like the aforementioned Penn State, AM, Notre Dame type roster. And you think to yourself, wait a second, if we're only like a couple of good tackles away, or if we just need one more dynamite receiver, or if we obviously like a lot of people need a quarterback, man we We may not have to go recruit a kid and wait until twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four to reap the benefit like this could happen uh one random morning or in early March. We could wake up and all of a sudden this this dynamite high four star kid who just didn't like the way things were going at University x entered the portal and then now he's here and man, what are we about to do this season like that's the hope, and that's the motivation or optimism for motivation rather that a lot of folks are gonna have now in those kinds of fan bases. And I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow for any of them. I'm just saying if you got the rest of your roster built, you're putting yourself in the right place. And then the right time in terms of a guy going into the portal, it may just find you. And it may be in some cases after a preview magazine's already been written or, you know, after you've done a top 25 ranking. Well, you got to be ready to adjust those rankings is all I can say. All right, here's a question from the podcast review section. And by the way, five-star reviews are appreciated. If you put a question in your written review along with that five-star review, I may just answer it. So here's one from the Apple podcast review section. So this was right after the Sugar Bowl where Ohio State had beaten Clemson. And the question is, now that I saw that out of Ryan Day, do I place him a little bit higher on the best coaches in college football list? Where would you have him before that performance? Thanks. This is a great listen. So I appreciate the compliment. Uh I already had him very, very high. And so that performance, I'll tell you, from an offensive play calling standpoint, it was great. I mean, it was a masterful game plan, but that's not really what impacted my, any kind of opinion change that I had about Ryan Day. I already thought highly of him, but I'll tell you what really impressed me. And what I think is one of the many features of that program that sets them up for a sustained run of excellence. They've got the recruiting, obviously they've got a really good coaching staff, but did you notice how they carried themselves going into that game Versus how Clemson did. And so there was a lot of talking, and I'm fine with that. As long as you're going to play the team on the field you're talking about, I'm fine with it. And so Clemson played him. Clemson got splattered by him. And now you dust yourself off. You try it again next year. But as for Ohio State, you would think to yourself, you know, an average person, if they dominated someone who had talked about him like that, well, they'd run their mouth after the game. Ohio State didn't. That's not an accident. Those guys are coached a certain way. They carried themselves a lot like Nick Saban in Alabama carried themselves after a win. They're kind of robotic. I mean, there's emotion and you celebrate. They were certainly celebratory, but none of them, none of them went ran to the nearest microphone and talked about get back and talked about revenge and talked about how we shut folks up even though you know they were feeling it, just like anyone who was watching who wasn't a Clemson Tiger fan probably felt it. It I mean, it was a great setup. It was a great build. It was almost like a, a pro wrestling promotion type build to that game, but I observed that. And then I listened to those guys. I tried to find every post-game press conference and interview I could, and no one had that attitude publicly. That's how you carry yourself as a professional. Even though you're in college, that's how you have a professional mentality. That separates you. That, to me, is what separates Ohio State. Now, since then, they've gotten run out of the building by Alabama a few days ago, but that's fine because Alabama was just that much better than everyone this year, and Ohio State had a lot of stuff they were dealing with. But Ohio State's going to be back. I don't have you know any kind of wager to put on the table right now, but if we were betting yes or no, Ryan Day wins at least one national title in the next four years, I would bet yes, he will. I think they're going to be there. I think their their recruiting is going to make it impossible for them not to be a contender every year. And then from that, you're going to find out that's not just a staff full of recruiters. I mean, that's a staff full of really good developers, really good coaches, and so I'd be overly excited, man. Like you got over you got over the hump you couldn't get over last year with the win over Clemson. Well, now you got the final hump that you have to get over, and it's winning a national championship. You may have to go through Alabama to do it. But they'll be back. Ohio State will be back. So the question was, what do I think about Ryan Day? I think extremely highly of Ryan Day. It's no coincidence and no accident when NFL franchises put their eyeballs on you. Think about that. There were already NFL franchises looking at Ryan Day. And don't just think about that. Think about what the answer was. When you see people reporting from sources about what Ryan Day thinks about going to the NFL, the source is Ryan Day. Let me just spoil that for you. The source is Ryan Day. And so when you see a lot of these national reporters saying, sources are indicating Ryan Day has no interest in the NFL, that's, that might as well be Ryan Day calling you up on your cell phone and saying, hey, Ohio State fan there uh, in Toledo, Ohio, hey, don't worry about it. I'm not going to the NFL. I'm here for the long haul. So you have what the NFL views to be their caliber of head coach that's going to stay in Columbus, Ohio, and have a roster advantage over 98% of the sport, be the preemptive favorite in the Big Ten every year, be a favorite to go to the playoff every year. You've got a well-established brand. You've got a ton of momentum. The only things that really could go wrong there are things that you control, and that largely is related to your mentality, and I just spoke about the mentality that that program has. So as long as they continue to be wired that way, they're set up for success in the long term. All right. Good podcast today. Uh, We'll probably start stretching these out a little bit longer as we fill in the inbox and we fill in a lot of the mailbag again. So again, Pate 706 at gmail.com and on Twitter at LateKickJosh. You can follow me there as well. I ask you humbly to do that. We will start to stretch it a little bit more. I remember in the off season, we were doing these things like 45 or 50 minutes. So a little bit over an hour in some cases, maybe not that long, but... We'll stretch it out a little bit further. So until then, for Producer Jordan, on the podcast side of things, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks for listening. Have yourselves a great day, and God bless.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.